I'd like to view once more briefly how the things I have talked about fit together and support the meditation practice and support a peaceful daily life. One cannot exist without the other. We don't meditate and live in turmoil. And if our meditation doesn't help us to create a lifestyle around us which is peaceful and harmonious, then the meditation hasn't really worked yet. If we have already a lifestyle and an inner feeling of peacefulness, meditation has a much easier time to flourish. So the first thing is that we try to create the best possible conditions outside of ourselves. As far as our living quarters, our food, climate and the people that we associate with are concerned. Also our work conditions. Now with work conditions we will find over and over again that we are not in charge of what happens there. Well, under those circumstances we become the noble friend. Our ability to have love and compassion is an asset to any situation we find ourselves in. The more we have, the easier the situation becomes. Mindfulness, bare attention in our daily life coupled with the mindfulness in the meditation helps us to purify the thoughts, substitution of the unwholesome with the wholesome, substitution of unwholesome emotions with the wholesome ones. In daily life, over and over again, whereas in meditation, substitution of any thought with the meditation subject. It's the same action of the mind. Substitution is a deliberate mind action. The more often we practice it, the more we feel that we are master of the mind and no longer the mind the master of us. Going from here to there, doing what it pleases, when we can substitute at will, we have a feeling of security, feeling of inner strength because we can think what we want to think. This substitution of opposites in the meditation makes meditation possible. As long as we don't do that, meditation is not happening. We're trying, which is fine, should be trying. But the moment we can substitute, then meditation can happen. 
So we need to do this in daily life. We can't do it unless we're mindful and fully aware of what our thought content or our emotional content is. So with that full awareness, we can substitute. Same here with meditation. The two are intrinsically connected. The more we do of the one, the better works the other in both cases. Our daily life is our kamatana, which means our (coughs) working field, the field where we work. The more we use our daily lives for practice, never telling others what they ought to be doing, a very popular pastime, but telling ourselves how to do it over and over again without justification and without the feeling of this is not possible for me, but with always a new resolution to try. That's all we can do, practice. But if we don't use daily life for practice, we're missing out on the whole of our life because what is our daily life? That's the whole of our life. Nothing special. Coming to a retreat such as this is nothing but an more intensive period to get to know methods, different thought patterns, different direction, and having the opportunity to be quiet and going within for a certain period of time. But nobody lives like this. We live in our daily lives. And that's where we practice. Every moment is an opportunity. Sometimes we miss the opportunity, all right? All we have to do is take the next one. If we notice that we have missed an opportunity, we have become mindful again. As long as we don't notice what we're doing, we're totally mindless. When it's just going along and we don't know what's happening with ourselves, constantly outward with our senses, always referring to what others are doing and always referring to how that either is to our liking or not. That's not mindfulness. That's reacting. There's an enormous difference between mindfulness and reacting. Reacting is the bane of daily life. Mindfulness is the possibility to change. Paying attention to oneself. The uh, body, action and movement. There's a lot of possibility there. If we want to be harmless, non-hurting, Our body is a very important aspect of that. All our thought process can be translated into body language. And if one is mindful, 
and attentive, that's quite easily seen and experienced in oneself. Then our emotions, which we can substitute with the wholesome ones. Then our mental states, our moods, and then the content of the mind, which we can either change the mental state already, if it's unwholesome, or the content of the mind. The more we do this in meditation, the easier it is in daily life. It becomes a habit. Once we have habitually washed ourselves after coming out of babyhood and washed our clothes, it's a habit, isn't it? Everybody washes themselves and washes their clothes. Well, it's the same with substituting the unwholesome for the wholesome. It's a habit. We don't want to run around with Thoughts or emotions which are obviously unpleasant, hurtful and are a source of impurity in ourselves. The Buddha gave five very um, pointed similes for getting rid of unwholesome thinking. For the meditation, it's the um, thought doesn't have to be unwholesome. It's just distraction. So these five points or five similes apply to the meditation just as much as to our daily living. As they apply to meditation, we just think of distracting thought. As they apply to daily living, we think of unwholesome thought and likewise unwholesome emotions. The first simile he gave, he said one should think of a carpenter who has put a plug of wood into a hole and he sees that it doesn't fit it's too small. So he gently pries it out again of the hole and puts a more fitting in. Which is the gentlest way of dealing with any kind of non-fitting thoughts. Obviously, in meditation, no thought fits. We're supposed to be meditating and not sorting out our future plans or changing the fate of the world or creating a new political party or whatever we are into. We're supposed to be meditating, so nothing fits at that time. So whatever it is, if we can gently recognize it for non-fitting, we can take it out and put something more fitting in. This applies just as much, of course, to daily living. The thought process which we are having when somebody tells us a story may be, oh, what a bore, I wish he was finished. But that's not fitting, is it? 
more fitting would be that person should be listened to with patience and loving kindness and compassion. So if we see it's not fitting, we change. Now that doesn't work, the non-fitting, then we come to the next simile. The next simile is a simile of a young couple dressed up to the teeth with their best clothing and want going out. So they come outside of the house in their best clothes and they realize with quite a shock that they're each carrying a dead carcass of an animal around their neck. So obviously that's very unpleasant and certainly they don't want to be seen like that. So they quickly run inside, get rid of that dead carcass of an animal, clean themselves up again and go out again. So when we find that we have a thought which is obviously something we wouldn't like to be seen with, although we think that nobody sees it, that's a misconception. Everybody sees it, even though it may not be quite as plain to see as a dead carcass of an animal, it's still visible. And if we don't want to be seen with a thought which would dirty up our inner life, we quickly let go, clean up and put in a different one and then go out again. We never like to go out with dirty clothes. Nobody likes to do that. We quickly change. If we see we only have a spot on our dress or on our shirt, we like to change that. But do we watch every spot that we have on our mind that carefully. That's what the Buddha teaches. That's more important than watching the spots on the clothing. He certainly also said that we should have cleanliness in our outer condition, but it must go hand in hand with the cleanliness in our inner condition. So we can remember these similes because they're quite striking. And then, if that didn't work, then the next simile is that we walk along the street and we see an acquaintance on the other side of the street. And instead of running over and inquiring after that person's health and starting a long conversation, we just keep going. We do not pay attention. So this refers to unwholesome thinking in daily life or distracted thought in meditation. We don't get involved. There's no need to get involved. It's an old acquaintance. All our unwholesome thoughts are old acquaintances. We've had them hundreds, thousands of times. 
They're always referring to the same thing, everything we don't like. And because there's so lot, such a lot of that, they're all quite known to us. In fact, they're following a certain pattern. Same trigger, same person walking along the street, and there off we go. So instead of getting identified with that thought, uh, really involved by inquiring where does it come from and why do I think like that, and surely that person is pretty awful that otherwise I wouldn't be thinking like that. We just don't pay any attention to it. We keep on walking. That means in meditation we just go back to the breath. In daily life we just don't allow it to enter. We take note of the fact that it has arisen but we don't pay any more attention than that. That's all. Because everything that arises has to cease. So not paying attention to it is quite obvious that it will cease. But if we do go and shake its hand and say, Hello, old friend, are you back again? Surely you feel at home in my mind. Then, of course, it takes much longer. And we make much deeper ruts into the mind, deeper ruts of negativity. The deeper the ruts of negativity are, the harder they are to eliminate, obviously. They are all possible to eliminate, but becomes more difficult as time goes on. The next simile is a man or a person running. And after having been running for a while, feeling quite out of breath and uncomfortable, and so says to himself, why should I be running? I could be walking. So, starts walking. After a while, feels very uncomfortable and quite um, tired. He says, why should I be walking? I could be standing still. So, stand still. And after a while, feels tired from that too. I could sit down, he thinks. So, he sits down. And after a while, doesn't feel comfortable with that anymore either. So, he lies down. And now he's finally comfortable. This is to see the discomfort which we are creating for ourselves with all our negativities. With all our distrusts, our fears, our anxieties, our doubts, envies, rejections, we create great discomfort. In daily life, in the meditation. We can't be comfortable in meditation until we are fully concentrated, until we can at least enter this mansion through the entry hall and experience the first absorption. Then we're comfortable. So we realize that each thought is uncomfortable, but because we may not be able to immediately drop it and go back to the meditation subject or we may not be able to immediately substitute with something wholesome, we now have the opportunity 
to make it more wholesome gradually. At first it was just getting rid of it, taking out that little plug. The second one is recognizing the impurity, getting rid of it. The third one is recognizing we don't have to identify and get involved, keep going. But now we have a, a gradual way of doing it because the others may not have worked. We should always try the first one and if it doesn't work, the second and so on. Sometimes our negativities are so ingrained. Somebody in our lives may have done something which we just cannot seem to forget and forgive. So it has to be gradual. So we must first recognize how uncomfortable we are when we think so badly about that person. So then we try to think a little less badly. And we're still not comfortable. And we keep on doing that until all of that negative thought, that dislike, that anger is completely removed. And we recognize the inner comfort. In the meditation, it's the same way. If the thought process has been going on and on and on, we have to gradually bring ourselves back. As we see that this isn't at all what we wanted to do, thinking about tomorrow, next week, next year, but actually we really did want to meditate to get some peacefulness, we gently, gradually let go of each of those thoughts and come back to recognizing the meditation subject by telling ourselves, I don't want that thought process, it's uncomfortable, I'd rather have peacefulness. Then the next thought may be, how can I get peacefulness? By coming back to the meditation subject. How can I do that? So a gradual way of coming back to the comfort of complete attention, mindfulness. It is very important to recognize the mental comfort and the emotional stability which is created through concentration. It's not just something that one does in order to learn some Eastern uh, spiritual way, it creates the comfort of one's mental life and it creates emotional stability because we don't have to get involved with all that which the triggers want to trigger in us. So this is now a slow and gradual path which is often necessary in daily life if we dislike somebody intensely. Or, if we have made ruts in the mind, disliking something over and over again. If we have disliked a certain thing long enough, or we have been afraid of a certain thing long enough, it takes a gentle, gradual reduction, recognizing the discomfort which is in, uh, entailed in this fear, anxiety, or dislike and making the comfort happen gradually until it's completely comfortable. And the same in meditation. Now, if none of these four ways 
have worked, then the Buddha resorts to the last possible um, way of doing it, which is forceful. And the simile is that a very huge giant of a man takes a small puny person by the neck and drowns them, which is not to be construed that the Buddha was in for killing people, please. But it is a simile for drowning the unwholesome or distracting thought through forceful suppression. That doesn't mean that we don't know we've had that thought. We can only suppress what we've had known before. But we don't deal with that thought because obviously all the other four ways have been not successful. Any of the inside approaches or gentle approaches have been unsuccessful. Otherwise we wouldn't be stuck there with this dreadful thought, whatever it is. So we need to actually go to a forceful state of mind. Now this forceful state of mind means that by drowning the thought, the water will be visible. It's a forceful substitution. We are really pushing. Now that's only a last resort. If nothing else has worked, that is recommended. Anything is better than keeping a negative thought or being distracted in meditation. Anything at all is better. So this, as a last resort, can be used if nothing else has worked. Naturally, we try the other approaches first. So it is a very forceful substitution where the distraction which is so strong that it doesn't uh, have it doesn't relate to any of the more gentle ways, gets pushed and something else brought up. And that's the simile for that. So we have the five similes, the plug of the carpenter, the dead carcass of animals around one's neck, the acquaintance whose hand we don't shake and don't ask after his well-being, the discomfort of running, walking, standing, sitting until we have comfort of lying down, and then the forceful suppression. Under the water that only the water appears, the forceful uh, way of <coughs> substitution. Five ways of removing distracting thoughts, this is called, but it applies to the unwholesome thought. By the same token, it applies also to the unwholesome emotion. Because the emotion and the thought are very closely connected. The thought process brings about the emotion. The emotion brings about the thought process. So either way, whichever one we are aware of, that's the way the Buddha recommended to deal with it. 
Now, because these are striking similes, they are quite easily remembered. What we can't remember, we can't practice. The whole of this path is the inner purification. This inner purification which makes everything possible because the blockages, the hardness, the barriers are all removed eventually. And there is nothing there except clarity and purity. Now to carry on with the review, having been able now to use these ways of getting rid of the distracting and disturbing thoughts and getting into the meditation subject so that we can actually stay with it, we have then the opportunity to come to a state in meditation which is peaceful. At least it has the peacefulness of not thinking. It's not total peacefulness yet, but at least it is totally different from the usual way of doing things where the mind is busy. Most people get very tired at night, but they haven't done anything tiring with their bodies. Maybe the most tiring activity during the day has been getting dressed or pushing a pencil across a paper, or eating, or going to the toilet, or taking a bath. And yet, they're tired at night. Why? Because the mind's been working overtime. Everybody's mind works overtime without getting any overtime pay. It's really a waste of good energy. The only way we can replenish that energy is through the meditation when we stop thinking. There's no other way. At night, when we replenish the energy of the body, which is necessary, because even those activities which I have enumerated do tire the body a little so we do have to replenish its energy but at night the mind doesn't get any energy replenished at night the mind dreams so it's just as busy again so if we would like a clear and strong mind one that doesn't tire out so easily, that can have clarity and reality in it, which can only come from clarity, then at least that first step in meditation, the first meditative absorption, is necessary, where the mind stops thinking for at least a while. 
while it is still on the breath, if it then stops thinking, it will automatically go into the first absorption. It's an automatic process. It all goes the same way for everybody. So we have that opportunity to replenish our mental energy. And the whole of our life is dependent upon our mental energy. There's nothing else that will direct our body. We go where the mind pushes us to go. So this is not only then restful and peaceful, but it is also nourishment for the mind, which we could never get otherwise. There's no way we can nourish the mind. We can't give it anything else except that. When I was speaking yesterday about the one-pointedness which accompanies all meditations, at least to some extent, and that being the antidote for our desire for sensual gratification, I mentioned that there are ways the Buddha taught of analysis. Analysis always of this person. The whole of the universe or monks lies in this passam long body, body and mind. As I've said several times already, we are the microcosm, which depicts the whole macrocosm, the whole of it. There is nothing else that we can actually investigate to gain proper insight, except that. So, the analysis concerns us. And the analysis already started when I explained the four primary elements. That's the meditation method. To see those elements in one's inner eye, of course, some of them we can see quite clearly with our um, vision, with our uh, outer eye. We can see this solidity, but we've got to feel it. To, to be aware of those elements within us and then translate that into the awareness of the elements around us so that we have the opportunity to feel more connected. It is a very important method because it takes away the intellectual thought of, oh yes, we're all one, it's not nice. But we really don't like the one who lives in the next house. But feeling it, feeling that the earth element is all around us, being able to flow from this earth element into the earth element which is in the floor, in the house, in the trees, on the ground, in the bushes, in the people, in everything that we can ever get any contact with. Equally so with any of the other three elements. We can use all four 
or just one, it doesn't matter. And we should try to have that feeling of togetherness. Only then do we lose our fear, our feeling threatened, our aloneness, our feeling of having to conquer something. There's nothing to conquer. As far as bodies are concerned, there are only four primary elements. Conquer situations, conquer difficulties. If we feel more connected, those don't arise, the difficulties. Now there's another thing that we can do with the body as far as analysis is concerned. And all these methods are methods for gaining a different perspective. The perspective we have had until then has been one of being seeing only straight ahead and not being able to see the wider view. The perspective is then quite primitive. It divides everything up into good and bad, into tomorrow and yesterday, into liking and disliking, into wanting and not wanting, into you and me, and us and them. A total duality. And that's a straightforward, one-way view. But it's a tunnel view. The, the new perspective which we can gain, we can actually have through analyzing ourselves. And then this wider view applies to everything that we know. So the Buddha recommended another meditation method. And all these methods should be tried out and done. That doesn't take very long. One sits down and within 20 minutes one can have gone through all four elements and through the whole thing that's around one. And then one can, if one sees one hasn't felt it, one has to stay with it a little longer. But at first one has at least one has an opening the next one that he has recommended is what is called the 32 parts of the body. And actually, in Buddhist countries, they learn the heart. And very often, that's it. But we don't have to learn them by heart. We're intelligent enough to know what's inside of ourselves. And if we miss out a part, it doesn't matter. And the way I recommend to do it is to Pretend you've got a zipper in front and open up the zipper and then take out all the bits and pieces that you can find inside. Heart, lungs, kidneys, liver, gallbladder, intestines, blood, bile, excrement, mucus, whatever you can find. If you can visualize, see it clearly where it is located, if you can, or where you think it's located. It doesn't have to be correct. It doesn't really matter. What it feels like when you touch it, 
and put it in front of you. And then look and see if you can find something else. And then get to the bones and make a nice, neat little pile of all the bones. And then have a look into all that mess and ask yourself, where am I in all that? Whatever answer you get, the next step is taking it all nicely back, sticking the bones in first, and then putting all the bits and pieces in again, zip it up, and look and say, aha, here I am again. And the absurdity of it all must finally dawn on everybody. It can't not dawn. To negative, make a positive and say yes. So it's absolutely impossible not to have a different perspective. And why is it important to do that with one's body? Because one has already said, well, I know I'm not the body. Because everybody thinks this is me. Just stand in front of the mirror. Who's looking at the mirror? Some body or me? What do we do for the body? always important. You go into a pharmacy, have you ever noticed how many hundreds and hundreds of different things we can buy there all for the body? Hundreds of things. And not all, of course, medicines. Some are for beautification, some are for changing the looks, some are for changing the color, of whatever one doesn't like in oneself in the color, all sorts of things. And have you ever looked into a department store window? The clothing? What's it for? The body, of course. Every year there's a, or no, every season, I think, every season there is a totally different uh, style, different colors, body. Have you ever gone into a hairdresser's and seen all the bottles they've got and all the scissors and all the combs? What's that? Body, isn't it? So it's no use saying, oh, I'm, no, I'm not the body. Do it. Do it and experience it. It is designed to balance us. Our preoccupation with the body is the one extreme. Seeing that absolute mess that's in there is the other extreme. Those two extremes balance out so that eventually there's complete equanimity towards this body, which is a necessary implement to be around. But that's all it is. And it isn't such a wonderful machine as we think it is. Otherwise, we wouldn't have such huge hospitals and so many doctors. If it was so wonderful, why does it always have to be repaired all the time? Not only that, there's another aspect which the Buddha did not talk about. Nowadays, we can even put in spare parts. And if that should ever happen to one, or if we know somebody who has had that done, we could for a moment 
Imagine, while their kidney was still in formaldehyde, it certainly was just a kidney. But when it's inside, well, it's me, isn't it? And without it, me doesn't function then. So we can have spare parts in this thing, all sorts of spare parts. We can take bits and pieces out, of course, too. We, we can have uh, things taken out, and it wouldn't matter at all. We can have the gallbladder taken out. Well, we still have it. Well, it's mine, isn't it? When it's out, whose is it? When we wear, have our hair, well, it's my hair, isn't it? I hope it looks nice. When we cut it off and it lies on the ground, whose is it then? So that is of a very um, important, very important aspect of gaining a little different perspective towards one's own person. Now, obviously, they're all the center of the universe, and they're all the main actor in this play that we are playing. But a little different perspective will help us not to be so concerned with the lines we say and with all the replies we get, but we can see it in a little wider view. This is one, another way of analysis of the body. And then, of course, we have the mind. And so maybe we have already agreed, well, I'm not the body, it's okay. I know all that. So I'm the mind. Okay? So now we've got to find out what is the mind. See, the Buddha did not allow just words. He has a particular interest for us because we're constantly concerned with it and it creates our reaction and our reaction is karma making so let's look at the sense contact first the way the Buddha explains is like this and we should not only listen to this but try it out ourselves if we want to widen our perspective if we want to have a larger world view if we want to have an understanding of why things are the way they are. This is an essential part of that. If we have the sense base, let's say the eye, in good order, and we have an eye object, that's this here, the microphone, and when the sense consciousness, which emanates from the sense base, meets the eye object, the thing we see, then seeing results. So we have a base like an ear. There is a sound, a hearing object. Now if this ear is in order, there's a hearing consciousness. It meets up with the sound and hearing results. Happens constantly. At the moment, the senses which are involved are hearing, seeing, and touching. Three senses are involved. We're touching in our sitting position, we're hearing words, and we're seeing the person we are looking at. So we have three senses that are, at the moment, working. Now, those three senses that are working 
cannot understand a thing. The eye can't understand, the ear can't understand, and neither can the buttocks understand anything. They're just touching. And the ear is just hearing, and the eye is just seeing. So all of that input is in the mind and being digested in the mind and creating in there the, first of all, the reception, like a reception in the mind. It receives all that input. And then being um, a reception committee, it puts all the different things in its categories where the mind has always put the stuff. And if we have too many little boxes and categories where we put everything in, we can't learn anything new. We're stuck. But if we take it in, as if we'd never heard anything before, in this case, let's stay with hearing, then we may not make a category of it or put it in our old boxes. But it may actually give us an incentive to think independently. So the whole of our sense connection with the world, while it is constantly taking place, doesn't do anything. It's only <coughs> the entry. And if we didn't have a good sense base in the eye, in other words, we couldn't see very well, we'd have a more pronounced touch uh, sense, probably. And if we can't hear very well, we might be able to use the seeing better or maybe another sense. But whatever it is, it doesn't have any autonomous understanding. It's nothing but a door, the sense doors. And because most people never, ever give this a second thought, but want to see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and think whatever is pleasant for them, it's never understood how it actually operates within us. The analysis is never made. And so we take everything for granted and react like we always have. And when we react like we always have, there's no possibility of purification of liberation, of freedom. Now, if we see that first analysis of the sense contact, and see how that comes in, we come to the next step, which is feeling. Now, the feeling is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. I've already mentioned that. And the neutral ones, we don't give any consideration. They're not interesting for us. We don't even notice them. At least they're not unpleasant. So we state this pleasant and unpleasant. And our life revolves around that. Please check that out for yourself. Don't believe or disbelieve. Just check it. Our lives revolve around pleasant and unpleasant feelings which come from our sense contact. If we hear something that the mind decides it doesn't like, we don't want to see that person again. We have resistance, rejection, anger, and so forth. And if we hear something that we like a lot, 
we'd like to be around that person. All that has happened was the sense contact with some words. That's all that actually happened. So what we need to know is that the feeling is automatic. So you can check that out with the sitting position, which I've already mentioned. If you get a pain in the body somewhere, you have a touch contact, and the next thing is the feeling, and then the naming of it. You can't have the unpleasant feeling before you didn't have the contact of it. At first the contact, then the feeling, then the perception. So now when we have got either pleasant or unpleasant feeling, we also perceive, we label. And if we, for instance, have been looking at a flower and we get a very pleasant feeling from it, we would say, beautiful flower. Or, maybe we smell something which is very un- gives a very unpleasant feeling and then the perception might be dirty skunk. Whatever it is, that's our perception of it, the naming. And then comes the reaction. I like that flower. I'd love to plant it in my garden. I wonder what its name is. Maybe I could cut one and take it with me. Should I cut one? Maybe they wouldn't like it if I didn't all happening because I saw a flower and got a pleasant feeling. Or if I smell something bad, maybe it smells as if something burned in the kitchen, then the label is burnt, and then the reaction is, well, these people can't cook at all. I wonder what they're going to give us for dinner. They should know I'm hungry, and so on. And this goes on day after day after day after day, moment after moment, all the time. And if it ever never becomes boring, one never can change it. It's extremely boring. That's why people are not satisfied with their lives. And what do they do? They look for new sense contacts to get some new ones. And then they get a little bit satisfied, little one, and they have to get new ones again. It's an automatic progression. And if you can see it and understand that like that within yourself, you will know that there's nobody doing it. It's just happening. So what I'm going to suggest to you is that when you go outside, that you use your seeing ability to look at something, whatever it may be, maybe a a leaf, and recognize how this works. You'll have to, in the first instance, you won't be able to do it. You'll have to slow yourself down and become extremely mindful. Recognize the fact that the mind sees, that the eye, sorry, sees something. That there's a certain feeling arising. Now, this is the hard part. If you just see something which is fairly neutral, you just have a neutral feeling and you won't know it. So maybe it'd be easier if you look at something that you think is very nice. Notice the feeling. And notice the mind giving the whole thing a label. And then notice the reaction. 
Now, in this case, the reaction from B can also be, oh, that's not true. It doesn't work that way at all. Well, that's a reaction. Anything is a reaction. Try it again. Try it with sound. It's a little easier with sound. When, for instance, you hear a bird sing, the ear cannot hear a bird sing. The ear hears the sound. There's a pleasant feeling. Then, bird song. Mind saying, I love birds. They're so pretty. I'm going to buy myself a bird book and then find out all the names. Maybe I can even join the Audubon Society. Birds are really wonderful. So, birds. All you heard was the sound. Sound only. It's a little easier with sound than with sight, but try it with both. And if you try it and get a little inkling of it, maybe not the whole story, but at least a little inkling, a different perspective again. It isn't me having all these things happening. It's a natural, pre-programmed progression. That's all it is. And when you notice that, some of that me idea might get a little more shaky. Because you see, the other thing is that when you realize that this is going on over and over again. You do it all the time. But there cannot be any real satisfaction. Because the thing that we see over and over again, that we hear over and over again, that we taste, smell and touch over and over again becomes habitual and it doesn't have even the pleasure of it. It may not even have the distaste of it either. It's just the common way of having our senses operate. So we always have to look for something a little nicer, a little better, a little more interesting, so that the mind has something to do. Watch that natural progression happening. And then, having done that, then try the following. Hear a sound and don't even identify it. It's not an easy thing to do, but you can at least try. Now, don't do it with birdsong because we've just talked about it and the mind is not, probably not able to, to be strong enough to stay away from saying birdsong. But, any other sound, sound only, now that's the utmost in mindfulness. And it gives the mind renewed strength. And it gives the mind also self-confidence that it doesn't have to follow the pre-programmed progression, but it can stop and it wants to. This is extremely useful, of course, when there are unpleasant sounds. When there are... Um, airplanes or something like that or trucks with backfiring sound only finished but if unpleasant feeling huge trucks reaction they shouldn't have these big trucks in the villages 
it's very bad for the pollution of the environment. One should actually write to, to the uh, authorities about it. And uh, trucks are something terrible anyway. Why don't they send it by train? And the rest of it. The whole story, getting completely involved and then getting angry about it on top of it because they're sending big trucks and polluting the environment. Oh, whatever one gets angry about, you can choose it. Everybody gets angry about something. It doesn't matter, dogs barking or whatever it is. So, sound only. Now, that's very difficult with sight. It's much easier with sound, but you can try it with both. And if, you, if you're successful with sound, you can then see whether you can do it with sight. And the sight is, whereas the ear is sound only, the eye is form, shape, and color only. That's all it can do. It can do nothing else. And once having really and truly established that in one's understanding, one finally knows that there is nothing that one has to desire or reject. It's either sound or taste or smell or sight or touch or thought. So what is there to desire so much or to reject so much? This is the beginning of a wide view of seeing an entirely different reality. The reality which eventually brings complete equanimity and an understanding in depth of what it means to be a human being. Taking away some of this idea that we are the epitome of creation. In the Buddhist uh, cosmology there are 31 planes of existence and we are number five from the bottom. So no question about being at the, the crown of uh, creation. If we see that we're number five from the bottom, maybe it will give us also an understanding of why things are the way they are. And not all bemoaning or lamenting that the world isn't functioning like a paradise. It can't. So that gives us an idea too. But these are ideas. And ideas don't work. Personal experiences do. So experience it. You've got plenty of time here. You've got plenty of quiet here. Go out in here. Go out and see. And see whether you can see, first of all, the progression, how it works, and then see whether you can stop it at the first instant. The analysis of the mind. Now, with the feeling, of course, which is only pleasant or unpleasant, as it arises, we have an immediate emotional reaction to that. And this is where anger and dislike, rejection and resistance, and love and compassion, and passion, and greed and wanting come in. Because the unpleasant creates the negative emotions, and the pleasant creates the positive emotions. Become aware of it. Don't believe a word I'm saying. Try it out. Once you try it yourself, there's no doubt that's the way it works. And once you know it works that way, you know also what the priorities in life are. No longer trying to see, hear, taste, touch, 
melon think the nice thing. They are no longer the poverty because they can't do it for us. They go up and down all the time, rising and ceasing. There's nothing that we can either see, hear, taste, touch or smell for any length of time. It's impossible. On the contrary, it's very unpleasant. Even the most pleasant sensation becomes most unpleasant if it is taken on for a long time. Once you have actually done that, taken the body apart into its bits and pieces, and asked yourself, where am I in all that mess? And then put it all nicely back again and zipped it up. And then taking the mind apart into its bits and pieces. And ask yourself, okay, which one of those four progressive happenings in the mind, which one says, that's me? Which one? Because me is obviously somebody that has a certain solidity and stationary uh, aspect to it. Well, which one of all those is me? You ask yourself. And if you find out something and um, find out any of that, well, it'd be very nice to share it with the rest of the people what you have found, where this me is sitting. Maybe that's enough about that subject. You might have some questions. Oh, do they? Must have learned it from the Buddha, huh? <laughs> I'm wondering too. There is one difference, though, and that is that um, they have sense contact, perception, and then feeling. Ah, that's where we get all the arguments from. I see. And the idea is that until you have compared the sense contact with all that's covered in the mind, you don't have a feeling about it. Mm-hmm. With, um, I remember being shown with these sort of ambiguous pictures that one is shown, and one is shown a series of pictures, and the pictures which can look either like a beautiful face or a bar. Right, and yes. Shown this picture, and told one is being shown a picture of several bars. Mm-hmm. And you look at it. And there is some useful feeling. Mm-hmm. And then again to other people, you have another time, you're showing the same picture and told, you know, you're given being shown a series of beautiful faces. And then a pleasant feeling arises mm-hmm. from exactly the same sense contact. Mm. It doesn't work that way though. <laughs> um, if you sit on your pillow and you sit there and you have the sense contact of touch. Mm-hmm. You don't say pain before you get the feeling. You get the feeling first and then you say pain. You've got to have the feeling in order to put the perception behind it. I, I, I don't want to um, um, downgrade the uh, 
psychologists uh, that are teaching at universities. But um, if you had known then about the Buddha's teaching, you could have asked them how they would explain that, what I've just said. Although that business with the vase and the picture, I, I know what you mean, I've seen it myself, the vase and the face, seems to make sense. It doesn't really. Because the minute the sense contact hits that moment, there's a feeling. And even if it's neutral, it doesn't matter. Because the perception then follows that feeling. So the next time you look, you might be seeing something else. A minute that it, you do, there's a, there's a feeling. See, you can see it yourself. If somebody says, look, look there, and you will see that. But that's the other person's perception. Your own perception follows your feeling. You see, now, if you sit here and you get an unpleasant feeling, right? And you've been trained long enough. You don't say pain. You're much too smart for that. You say, unpleasant feeling. So the minute you say pain, you get a reaction. You get a reaction, I don't want it. But if you've been training long enough, you don't do that. You say, unpleasant feeling. Finished. But you can't say anything until you've got it. So that thing with the, I, I remember seeing that, I mean, not in that context of psychology, but just seeing the vases and then some actually being faced with also a profile faces, right? And uh, you get the feeling from the contact. So try it out yourself. When you go outside, it's not easy. This one is easy, right? With the touch contact and then the, uh, uh, the feeling, the unpleasant feeling. It's very easy. But when you have just sight or hearing, with hearing it's not so difficult. Um, if, we ha if you want to meditate, if you're sitting and meditating, right? And there comes this airplane right over your head. It creates a very unpleasant feeling in here. It's like a um, movement, very unpleasant. And immediately the mind says, these airplanes, they're always playing war. Can we not, can't we ever finish with that? So you've got your perception and your reaction to that. So if that airplane wasn't creating an unpleasant feeling in you, you wouldn't have to say anything. Because you can. Um, when the airplane comes overhead and you are actually meditating and you've been trained long enough, you can use the vibes of the sound to go with the vibe, vibration of your own body and nothing happens. So I've heard that, no, not exactly the way you've just been telling it, but I've had that, I've heard that argument many a time and now I know where it comes from. It comes from the psychology teaching. I've wondered why, and I've heard it several times, people say, no, 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 you first get the perception, then the feeling. You can eventually, but as long, uh, until you do, it's <laughs> automatic. <laughs> when you stop the sound, it's sound only. You don't have to have the feeling. Like I was saying with the airplane, you get an immediately unpleasant feeling from it when you're meditating. I mean, even when you're not meditating, probably, you get an unpleasant feeling from it. And then you're, you're often running. 
then comes the perception and the reaction. But if you have trained long enough in meditation, you can use that sound as a vibration and it's just a vibration and you don't have to have that feeling. The feeling may be there, but you don't be paying attention to it. But at this stage, what we're trying to do is stop perception labeling and accepting the feeling. Um, yes, stopping the reaction. Stopping the reaction. Go as far as the perception and recognizing what it is and stopping the reaction. But in, when you go outside, I was suggesting that you even stop everything but just hear sound or see sight. Try that. And in, in daily life, we can use that then in order to stop the reaction. You don't have to react to everything. Yes. Emotion is reaction to the either pleasant or unpleasant feeling. So the emotion is either joy or so dislike. So if you go back down into deeper, then you'll just be aware of pleasant and unpleasant. Yes. yes. And these are still really nothing but sense impressions. Yes, that's right. But it isn't necessary to do that in the meditation because as the pleasant feeling, if a pleasant feeling arises, it does become your meditation subject, but you don't have to give it any name for anything like that. But the concentration in that case is your trigger, and in or the non-concentration, whichever. Anything else? Yes. Can you see the whole thing again? I'm sorry, I, I didn't relate. <laughs> No, I said there are 32 planes of existence, there are 89 states of consciousness. Which one do you want? Okay, 32. Yes. Uh, yes, I can probably send you one. <laughs> um, they are the planes of existence, you're aware of seven, you said. Uh, yes. Um, let me see. They are often depicted as five, six, seven. They are often depicted as seven. 
you can depict them as seven. And uh, I can tell you what the seven are in the, in the Buddhist uh, uh, cosmology. I will not be able to name all 32 because they've all got different names. <coughs> but in the Buddhist cosmology, the seven are planes of existence and you can look upon them as states of consciousness. So the uh, human one is the fifth from the bottom and underneath is first as the fourth one, the animals. And underneath that as the third one are the titans, which are called the asuras, which are fighting, fighting, fighting devas. Devas are, are beings which are maybe in the, in the, you're in the Christian terminology angels, but they're fighting. They're often depicted as black and white, titans that are constantly fighting with each other. And then underneath that are the hungry ghosts, that they're depicted usually as little stick people that have huge tummies and very tiny little throats, and they're so greedy, and they can never fill their big tummies. That's the hungry ghosts. So that's ghosts uh, like what you find in English castles. Uh, you know, they, they really had to keep that castle. They didn't want to give up, so they're still there. <laughs> and uh, then the uh, lowest one is the hell realm. Those are the five. And then the next one, the sixth one, is the deva realm. Now within that deva realm, there are from number six to number 28, so that's 22 different levels of devas. And the lowest level, the just above the human level, are the Bhuma devas. Now the word Bhuma is earth, the earth devas. They're the ones that are living in cabbages, like in Kinton, in, in cabbages and roses and bushes. And some people can see them, like the, somebody at Kinton could see them. They're the Bhuma devas. And uh, they, uh, their homes are in, the, in nature, nature devas and uh, of course they are very much um, uh, hurt by us when we destroy nature and then progressively more subtle deva realms becomes progressively more subtle until the last four realms which are so they are called the brahma realms and brahmas are gods so they are the god realms and they have no not even a subtle body they're mind realms only. So that's the, then you can say that's the seventh realm. So you can divide it into seven realms, from the god realms to the devas to the humans and then below. And the ones that we can see are obviously the ones that are nearest to us. The animals we can see very easily and the boomer devas, the ones in the cabbages, well, some people can see them, you know. <laughs> Sorry? No, it's not like a like a, a school system where you have to go from one to the other. Uh, it's a way where you it's a way of rebirth according to the kind of consciousness that you have developed in this birth or any other. But it's not enlightenment. You can go up and down in any which way. So none of them are desirable. Yes. Evil spirits. Well, I mean, hungry ghosts. You know, they're not usually very, very kind and pleasant. <laughs> I don't know. Never seen a ghost in my life. 
I can only, this, uh, what I'm just saying, I can only give you out of the scriptures. I mean, I uh, have no personal uh, experience, neither of hungry goats, nor of titans, nor of devas uh, and the cabbages. So, I mean, but I know that that's what's meant, the boomer devas. And then there's the, the higher realms are uh, strictly mind-connected. So if your consciousness, now that consciousness that we have, if that becomes elevated enough, we become aware of those levels. We can become aware of any of the levels. But seeing with your physical eye, that's a different story. We can see the animals, but very few people even see the boomer devas. So that's the levels of uh, existence. Anything else? So seven is quite enough. I mean, because the the uh, devas, the uh, deva realms are divided up into the um, realm of the thirty-three, the realm of the kings, the realm of the um, making making something out of nothing. I mean, there are all sorts of uh, different levels. They become more and more subtle, but it's not very important. And Well, all you have to do is examine your own consciousness. That's all. So it can all be, can all be experienced in your own consciousness. Can, can they affect that? You can affect everything. I mean, can another person affect you? You know, people talk about evil. Yes, if you allow it. No, no. Not through meditation. Through meditation, you strengthen the mind. Through non-meditation, you weaken the mind. So people can only hurt you through your mind? People can only hurt you if you allow them. I mean, even in everyday life, if somebody wants to hurt you, it can only happen if you allow it, if you react to it. If you don't allow it, it can't happen. Mm. Meditation strengthens your mind. If you've got a weak mind, yes, sure. You allow all these things to happen. But as soon as you meditate, the strength arises even almost immediately, if you keep it going. Yes? You must have had the experience when you were in Sri Lanka of uh, tall sitting ceremonies where people used to try to form images of a wood particular. I presume this happened in the time of the Buddha also. Did you know anything to say about this? No. It's a it's a kind of South Indian um, cultural um, embellishment. It's certainly not Buddhism. Uh, cultural embellishments are multitudinous and are usually um, very or not usually but very often mixed up with what the Buddha really taught. Sri Lanka is an excellent example for that. <laughs> yeah. uh, can one with meditation uh, ward off the effects of this pain which we may desire in Sure. Of course. The meditative mind is a mind which is strong, pure and clear. A strong, pure and clear mind doesn't have anything to do with with evil thoughts. We allow them in when we think them. 
the weakness of the mind allows them in. It's just like the weakness of the body allows the virus to come in. Same thing. Anything else? Yes. Yes. Somebody is created and they have relied on um, outside stimulus, like produced by sight or hearing, to um, cause a, an effect on their mind so that they can be creative. Would meditation, in fact, um, strengthen creativity? In my experience, it does. It strengthens creativity that is latent. Latent creativity is strengthened. And um, because it becomes intuitive rather than relying on the senses. So my experience uh, is that way. When we rely on our senses, we are very much... um, dependent and also not there's no purity behind it because we want something yes um, I'm going to say another um, very famous but very well known artist and painter has relied very heavily on the senses I have no idea I don't know any (laughs) I have no idea I don't know. Relies on their senses. I mean, they can be a very good artist anyway. But the greatest artists that we've ever had in music and in painting were all related to the church. It was all religious. All the all the greatest music that we have and all the greatest paintings that we have were all religious. So I'm not saying that these people necessarily meditated, but they must have had some religious life within them that made it possible, like Leonardo da Vinci, for instance, made it possible for them to have that kind of creation. And I'm afraid I don't know any of the modern ones. So you're saying that they they must have had some sort of spiritual life and some sort Hmm. of spirituality to become as creative as they became. Yes. I wouldn't be able to say, I mean, I have no, no knowledge of it, but uh, whatever it is, I mean, prayer uh, turns into meditation eventually too. I mean, Teresa de Villa never mentions the word meditation. She uses prayer, but the different stages of prayer turn into meditation. It's all, you know, just words and concepts. Most artists uh, really have one point of view. Whether they're spirit, whether they say they're spiritual or not, they yeah. have to be for one point of view. Yeah, that's right. Which is in spite of the best. That's right. But I know one young man who was quite a um, well, in local, a really good rock and roll, heavy metal mm. musician, and he started meditating. And he went away 
and looking at him through nervous hazards. And then he found that he could no longer write or play that type of music. Mm. And the thing was, he dropped all his anger. He was no longer angry. He had to be really angry to produce. Mm. Because that comes from your own chakras. Mm. You've moved up to the heart. So so that kind of music was no longer possible. That's probably a a benefit, isn't it? To him and others. (laughs) 